Well, good morning. Good morning. If you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 7. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 7. I'm going to be reading the entirety of the chapter this morning. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says this, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice, to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Amen. For the consistent themes that we keep returning to week after week of the sovereignty of God over all things. The sovereign control of our God over the history of the world and over our life and our circumstances in the here and now. We're thankful that as we unpack this revelation that continually, page after page, line after line, it is the glory of God that is on display. It is the worship of God that is being displayed for us. It is you who are revealed. And I pray that at the, the center of our, our preaching today, at the center of our hearing as the people of God, there would be Yahweh God high and lifted up for all that you've done for us. And we get our eyes off of our, our circumstances, off of ourselves, 
off of everything that we face in life and fix our eyes squarely on you, on who you are, on your faithfulness, on your truth, on your word. Open our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're still unpacking uh, what is happening in the heaven and on the earth as Jesus just one by one is breaking the seals on this scroll that he alone is worthy to open. And so far we've seen, and I've I've printed this for you there in your notes, uh, A, as those first four seals were broken, we've seen explanations and manifestations of the beginning of sorrows that Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse. And of course we go back there and Jesus told us that before judgment was going to come, there would be false messiahs that would present themselves. There would be wars and rumors of wars. There would be famines and earthquakes in diverse places. And then finally martyrdom, people turning their loved ones over to the authorities who they would be killed for their faith. And we saw those things vividly portrayed in those first four seals as they were broken. We also saw, uh, with the breaking of the fifth seal, this description of the martyrs killed for the sake of their faith and who were crying out for this fulfillment of justice. And again, we go back to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus points to all of the martyrs from Abel all the way forward. And he says he's going to visit justice upon that generation. And so these, these martyrs are there. They're crying out for that promised justice. They're looking for that justice. And finally, last week we saw, see under the breaking of that sixth seal, a cosmic deconstruction language, uh, both written in the text of the scripture itself. Uh, they could open it, they could read it, they could go back to the Old Testament, they could know that judgment was coming upon the covenant breakers in Israel. But also God didn't just write it in the text of the scripture, he wrote it on the creation itself. He put signs in the heaven and signs in the earth. And those, those Jews who knew the Old Testament should have known, they should have recognized judgment is coming Upon us, of course, all of those signs were portending the wrath of God coming upon the world. Now, hopefully, all that stuff is still very vividly in your minds, and you're tracking with with us where we are today. This week, and this is for your notes here, as we come to chapter seven, what we find is not the breaking of the seventh and final seal, but rather an interlude. So, for your notes, the word in the blank is an interlude. As we come to chapter 7, what we find is not the breaking of the seventh and the final seal, but this interlude. And in the interlude, we're going to see two things, and I don't want you to panic because we're not going to cover all of this today. We're breaking it up into two weeks. But we're going to see, number one, the, uh, the, the restraining of the powers of evil and destruction that are unleashed on the earth unto the sealing of God's elect in Israel on the earth. We're going to see that today. And then next time, this revelation of a great worshiping multitude of saints in heaven who, who've died or would die under the, the evil and the destruction released under all of those beginnings of sorrows. In other words, they will have died or they have died under that great tribulation that was visited upon the church leading up into the great wrath of God that was coming. So in this interlude, we've got two groups of people, a sealed elect of Israel on earth and a great worshiping multitude of saints in the heaven. And both groups, I've written this for you in your notes, 
Uh, Both groups are presented to us here in this interlude as a direct answer to the pressing question uh, that that we faced at the end of chapter 6 last week. I'm going to read that verse for you right here. Chapter 6, verse 17. The great day of their wrath, that's the wrath of God, has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? So there is this question that's sort of lingering in the air as we come into chapter 7. Who is able to stand? Who's able to stand in holiness and in righteousness and in victory when at last the day of God's wrath comes upon us all? That is the question that's just sort of laying there. And as we come into chapter 7, that question is definitively answered. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer right here at the beginning. I've framed it for you also in your notes. Those will stand, living and dead, whose hope is in Christ alone. Those will stand in the final day. Those will stand in the judgment when it comes, living and dead, whose hope is in Christ alone. These are they who are sealed and kept by the sovereign grace of God. They readily confess, as we'll see next week, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the confession of their heart and their soul. So the elect of God who trust in Christ alone, they will stand by the gospel work of Jesus Christ for them. They will stand in the judgment. They will stand together in the congregation of the righteous as we read in the Psalms. Right? And to that we say hallelujah and amen. Those who are in Christ Jesus because of his work for them will stand when God's judgment comes. And of course, that's the ultimate question answered by these lines. And that answer, though, as is true with everything that we've been seeing so far in the Revelation, is centered on God, right? He's the reason that the righteous will stand in the final analysis. And so the the focus here is on God. The focus is on the Lamb of God. The focus is on the gospel of God. And so as it has been from the beginning, it's the glory of God that is chiefly on display here in chapter 7. And there really are so many different aspects of God's glory that are vividly portrayed here. And what we're aiming to do in the next two sermons is just unpack as much of that glory as we can. And so to do that, we go to the text. Look again at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then you get this list of 12,000 from 12 different tribes of Israel. And that brings us to number one. The identification of the 144,000 sealed servants of our God. Who are they? What do they represent? These are two questions that I hope to answer as we cover this point today. Just preliminarily though, as we get... As we aim towards answering this question, or these questions, we've got some things to, to cover here. Uh, first of all, in verse 1, we, we begin to see some things emerging. There are the number four, first of all, for your notes. Four angels, four corners of the land, four winds of the land. And I just want you to think back to the, the sermons that we preached as we came into this series. I want to say it was about the third sermon in the series where we talked about the high symbolism that runs throughout the book of the Revelation. And part of that symbolism involves numbers and we 
in that sermon, we just walked through a, a great variety of numbers that come up over and over again in the Revelation. And a couple of those, uh, 4, 12, 1,000, we'll see some of those today. But 4 was a number, for your notes, which signifies all of creation. So while all of this is aimed at, aimed at are the words that go in those two blanks, aimed at the land, don't forget this is about Israel. This is about God preserving the faithful in Israel and judging the covenant breakers in Israel. While all of this is aimed at the land of Israel, the number four lets us know that it is felt creation-wide. It's felt creation-wide. So it's felt all over the inhabited earth. We think back to last week. We talked about the signs uh, in the heavens, and we, we look back into history, and we can see even people as far as, as China, those historians are writing of the stars that lingered, or the, the comets, the, the astronomical things that were happening in the heavens back before God's judgment came on Jerusalem. We, we talked about the massive earthquake in AD 66 that shook virtually the entirety of the Roman Empire. These things are being felt creation-wide. These angels here, verse 2, are given this power to harm the creation. It's affecting many, many different peoples, but it's aimed at, it's focused on Israel, the Jews, but there's a very pronounced destruction just going on all throughout the world. However, and again for your notes here, at the moment, and for the purpose of this interlude, that destruction is being restrained. It's being restrained. Restrained is the word that goes in the blank. So that's the significance of the wind being held back. So let's just say a quick word on the wind. This is in your notes as well. Wind in the Bible typically accompanies the presence of God. And that, that wind of God's presence can, can signal either deliverance or salvation, which is, which is a positive thing, or it can signal judgment, the coming of God's judgment and condemnation upon a people, which of course is a negative thing. And which one is in view has to be determined for us by the context of whatever passage uh, we are reading. Well, in context here of the harming of the land and the sea, these are clearly the winds of judgment. So judgment is the word that goes there in the blank. These are clearly the winds of judgment. They are the winds of destruction that are under the power of these angels. Even so, they are from God. I want us to keep coming back to that. These winds of judgment are from God. God is in absolute control of all of these things. These judgments go out. These, these warnings go out. These signs that are shaking the earth. They're under the power of Christ. As he breaks the seals, <clears throat> he is the sovereign king over all things. He is in absolute control. Let's not lose sight of the king. And again, that truth of God's sovereignty it's expressly stated here in verse 2 because at the end of verse 2 we read that these four angels had been given they're given the task I want you to write task in the blank there They've been given the task to harm the land and the sea now, I've also written a note there for you I think it's just small print uh, the word power I've said task here because the word power even authority is not in the original Greek text. The King James Version actually gets this more literal here. It says this, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. There's no word mention of power or authority. But the idea there is 
There's this divinely given mission, this divinely given task. Right? God has set these angels to a particular task to bring this destruction to bear upon the world. So again, God is in control of the things, and the language of the text actually continues to communicate that to us. They had been given a particular task by the Lord, and they are there bringing this destruction on the earth. And again, the truth of God's sovereign control is, is revealed in his power to release these judgments, to restrain these judgments. So going back to verse 2, the fifth angel shows up, and he shouts this divine command, do not harm until. Do not harm until. So the judgment here is not being canceled. The, the things that are coming out are not being canceled. They're not being put away. They're just being restrained as I said, and they're being restrained because, for your notes, God has an eternal purpose to accomplish. He's got an eternal purpose to accomplish. As is everything that we've seen so far, God is in control, and God has a purpose and a plan for all of the suffering that we go through. He's got a purpose and a plan for the suffering that is here now, and he is accomplishing those purposes. So before we go any further, let's just get all this in our minds, the big picture here. We've got, and I've just printed this out for you in your notes, we've got four angels. They're controlling the winds of destruction. They're charged with harming the land and the sea. And their winds of destruction are being felt all over uh, the world, but especially in the land of Israel. But then we have that destruction being restrained at the divine command, this command that is being heralded by, heralded by a, a fifth angel, so that now these angels are restraining. They're holding back the four winds, and they're doing this for purpose and what is the purpose look at verse 3 do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads so the purpose of God in this little interlude here is just sort of pull back the curtains of God's eternal purposes as it were it's just to reveal to us his sovereign power to protect to preserve and to otherwise provide for his people and thereby to answer that question who can stand who can stand and so God begins there to answer the question through the sealing of these individuals in their forehead now to fully understand this and appreciate what is going on here we need to get the Old Testament background again you'll think back to the introduction to this Revelation series the Revelation like, like Wayne likes to say is the most plagiarized book in all of the New Testament it, literally 400 more than 400 times the Old Testament is, is quoted or alluded to or cited in some fashion. So you have to have a good working knowledge of the Old Testament to be able to understand what's going on here in the Revelation. And so we go to this Old Testament background. It's Ezekiel chapter 9. I have printed the text there for you in your notes. But let me just give you the idea of what's going on here. God in the Old Testament is about to pour out judgment on Jerusalem, on Israel for her great sin. And he's got these, these six executioner angels with weapons of slaughter in hand, and they're ready to go in and to bring this judgment upon God's people. But before God sends these angels in to, to wreak this havoc upon the land, he sends what the text calls another man, another angel, I suppose, with a writing instrument. And he's sent to mark out the righteous by placing a mark on their foreheads. And those who bear this mark, Ezekiel chapter 9, God sets apart to be preserved alive through that coming judgment. So, so for them, for those who are marked, who are sealed in their foreheads, the judgment is going to be happening all around them. 
but they're going to survive this. Right? They're going to be preserved alive. So that's Old Testament context there. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 9. And the Lord said to him, talking about the man who's got the writing instrument, who's going to do the marking, the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So get this, Israel is sinning. She's gone the way of idolatry. She's trusting in foreign nations and foreign powers. She's bowing down to the Baals and and other gods. But there is a group in Israel, a faithful remnant, and they still love God. And they're not only doing right things and continuing in right worship, but they're grieving in their hearts and souls over all of the abominations that they see around them in the culture at large. They're, they're, They're grieved in their hearts, and these God marks out. Verse 5, And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. Touch no one on whom is the mark. So those who, who bore the mark in Ezekiel's day will be preserved alive through the judgment Again, that is the Old Testament context of what we we have here in the Revelation. Same thing is happening in the Revelation. For your notes, God is ordering the sealing of a particular people. God is ordering the sealing of a particular people who will be preserved alive. Alive goes there in the blank. Who will be preserved alive providentially. God is going to ensure this. He's going to protect them. He's going to provide for them. They're going to be preserved alive through that coming judgment. So part of the answer to that question at the end of chapter 6, who can stand, comes through those who are marked out as survivors of God's coming wrath. These are they who are going to go through that judgment, but who providentially, by the power of God, by the provision of God, will be kept safe from it. They will not be martyred. They will not die as a direct result of that coming judgment. They will, of course, die later on. They are human beings, after all. It is appointed unto men once to die. But death, because of the coming judgment, that's not going to come upon these who are marked in the Revelation. They are sealed as survivors, a remnant, if you will, who will go safely through it. And so again, for your notes, the Old Testament context shapes how we understand this group. These are first believing survivors. Survivors is the word that goes there in the blank. These are believing survivors. How do we know that they are believing survivors and not just some random group of survivors that God is going to preserve through the coming judgment? Other than the fact that our text here in chapter 7 actually calls them the servants of God. We can go back. A, I've given this to you in your notes. Uh, the Old Testament styles these that are marked as men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. So they are doing the right thing. They are bowing before God and God alone. And they're grieved over the fact that their, their brothers and sisters in the covenant are not obeying the Lord. They're not following after Yahweh God. So there's that. And then being chapter 14 as we get down the road in this we're going to come back to these 144,000 who were sealed and chapter 14 describes them as these have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins 
It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I just quick note on this here. We'll say more about it when we get there. But it's virginity. It doesn't have to be taken literally. Revelation is painting this, this grand picture. There is the harlot of the Revelation, and she is Israel. She is apostate Israel. And she's being contrasted here with virgin Israel, who's faithful to God. So there's idolatrous harlot Israel who's rejected Christ, who's, who's pierced him, who's going to be judged. But then there's faithful Israel, the virgin, who's kept herself spiritually pure for the Lamb. And they follow him. They've made themselves ready for the coming of the bridegroom. They stand apart as faithful. So these are the disciples. Not the disciples, but they are disciples. They're Christ's followers. They are without a doubt believers. These are Christians. But they're not just any Christians. And this seal, just to be very clear here, because I think we can, we can get mixed up with the language. This is not the seal of our salvation that we talk about in our creed, right? This is not the seal that Ephesians will talk about, the seal of the Holy Spirit that, that is on all of God's children. When you come to Christ and you are born again, God sets his seal and we are sealed unto the day of redemption. Right? You know that language from the New Testament. That's what we're confessing in our creed. This is not that seal. This is a, a very unique, uh, very specifically purposed mark, just like in the days of Ezekiel. And Revelation 7, 4 through 8, gets very specific about the ethnic identity of these particular ones who are sealed. And on that we say, these are bloodline Jews. They are set apart for a very specific purpose. So let's just clarify some, clarify some things. In the past, many of you were here when we did our small groups. We walked through Revelation probably a couple of years ago, or at least we, we started doing that. As we did that, we came to this section, and I noted quite correctly, I, I still believe, just the highly symbolic nature of the numbers here. So I don't necessarily believe that this 144,000 has to be taken in a woodenly literal way. Maybe it's half a million people. Maybe it's, maybe it's 9,000 from each tribe. I don't know. If it may have actually been 144,000 people in history that God specifically carried through that judgment. It, it's very possible. We just have no way of proving that historically, right? But we, we go to this highly symbolic nature of numbers again. And you've got this in your notes. Again, I think it's the third sermon that we preached in this overall series. So I didn't print it for you again in your notes. But we talked about the number 12, right? 12 is a number that is used throughout the Word of God to depict God's covenant people. you got the 12 tribes of Israel under the Old Covenant. You've got the 12 apostles of the Lamb in the New Covenant. We come and we see this throne room scene here in the Revelation. And there are 24 elders, I believe, representing the 12, uh, 12 for the God covenant people of the Old Testament and 12 for God's covenant people of the New, bound together as one people before the throne of God. So we have that consistent imagery. We'll go on later in the Revelation. And there's 12 manner of fruits on the trees to which the elect have access. There are 12 foundations to the city that that is God's elect people. There are 12 gates to that city that is the people of God. So consistently throughout the word of God, we have this number 12 that points to God's elect people, however they are composed. And then we look at the number 1,000 throughout the Bible, right? This is a number that, that just indicates 
an innumerable, indefinite, but perfect sum, right? So 10 is the number in the Bible of ordinal perfection. We've got 10 fingers, 10 toes. We think of that as being complete and whole, right? This is the connotation. But 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. It's 10 cubed. And so there's this all-inclusive fullness uh, when the scripture uses this number, 1,000. So for example, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not as if God owns only the cattle on a thousand hills, and by the time you get to the thousand and first hill, that belongs to somebody else, right? That's not what the scripture means. The scripture means when it says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it means he owns everything, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. So when it says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he has everything. It's the full complement of what is in the world. Well, it's the same connotation here when we have this thousand, twelve times twelve times a thousand, right? There's these covenant people, and God has the full complement of that covenant people. So it's, it's difficult for me, it's almost impossible for me to come here and read these numbers and ignore that symbolism, right? 144,000 clearly is a designation for the elect people of God the fullness of them in some capacity, right? Where I have gone wrong in the past, and I, I do believe I did go wrong here, was where I saw this group too broadly. I wrongly interpreted these 144,000 sealed servants of God as a representation of all of God's people from throughout all time, and that simply is just too broad a category. I think in the past, I, I wrongly assumed that wherever this, this group is pointed to of God's elect people and the grand visions of the revelation, I just assumed that, that surely that's got to include all of God's covenant people, and that's just not necessarily. So, this is a very specific group of people. They're marked out for a very specific purpose. That is made absolutely clear, especially as we consider in light of the Old Testament. And so, according for your notes, according to the language of, te- of the text here, these are Jews. These are Jews. Not Christian Gentiles, but Christian Jews. They are believers. They are to be survivors of the coming judgment, and they are Jews. We look at the text to prove this. Verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So we often hear, and I'll clear this up, especially from dispensationalism, will hear this charge. Anytime Israel is used in the Bible, it, it means national Israel. Well, that's just not true. Romans chapter 9, even, even in the space of one verse, 9-6, Paul uses Israel in two distinct senses. Not all who are of Israel are in fact Israel. He uses it in two very specific senses. One sense is bloodline descendants. The other is a covenant people of God. So scripture has always viewed and understood there is an Israel, a a broad covenant people, but it's made up of believers and unbelievers in Israel. There's idolaters and faithful, uh, the rebellious and the remnant. right? And then there's the spiritual covenant Israel, who is that remnant, who is faithful to God. And so Paul, even there in Romans chapter 9, is beginning to separate those things out. Don't assume that because someone is a bloodline Jew that they are in the covenant, that they are true Israel. We go back to the letters in the Revelation. John or Jesus will point to those who call themselves Jews. 
but are not. Well, they really are Jews, but they're not true spiritual Israel. Paul and, and John here in the Revelation, they make those distinctions between Israel of the flesh and the true Israel of God. And later on in Romans 9 through 11, we're going to find out that Gentiles are also grafted into that true Israel that is at its root, Jewish. So when we read Israel in the scripture, it doesn't always mean national Israel. Here, however, I think that's what tripped me up in the past. Here, however, the use of the name Israel in connection with the word tribe, in further connection with and delineation of, of just persons out of very specific tribes. We have to let the context drive our interpretation. And the context here is clearly and overtly Jewish. These are Jews. And again, I don't think the numbers have to be taken too literally. This is just the fullness of God's elect from the tribes. And the verses that follow just lay that out. 12,000 for Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and the tribe of Benjamin. Twelve tribes here are named. So clearly these are Jews. And, and honestly, I deeply regret my past error in saying that this is just all Christians without discrimination. I told you in the beginning, we have to stay humble as we go through this. Our minds have to be open to change because nobody is right all of the time. God uses things like this to keep me humble. I'm wrong. I admit it. These are Jews. The language is just too overt to deny that. And there really is no good theological reason to deny that. These are Jews. So who are they? Just summing it up. Who do they, what do they represent? Uh, they are, and I've, I've just printed this for you in your notes there. They're the elect of God. Chapter 14 tells us that this seal that is marked on their forehead, it's the name of the Lamb and of the Lamb's Father. So this is the covenant name of Yahweh God that is marked on their foreheads. Uh, they're believers in Christ and of the Lamb. They're believers by faith. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Revelation chapter 14. They're righteous and holy, uh, spiritual virgin, virgins, pure by the grace of God through the gospel. Again, that's Revelation 14. They're Jews, separated by God to be a surviving remnant of the coming wrath. And we get that from Revelation chapter 7 and again Ezekiel chapter 9. That's who these 144,000 people are. And that's what they represent. Now as for their purpose and what they teach us. We're going to cover that under our second and final point today. Number two, the implications of the 144,000 sealed servants of our God for us. And again, as we typically do, I've just got some broad headings there for you. Write down whatever you like from what we say here. But let's just talk about why these 144,000 are singled out here. A, they deliver to us, in part, the answer to the question, who can stand? They deliver in part the answer to the question, who can, can stand? And it's a huge question. Who will stand when the wrath of God finally comes upon the earth? It's a very relevant question in light of just this powerful language uh, that is used in the text about God's wrath coming upon the covenant breakers in Israel. Surely Jews especially have to be wondering, is anybody going to survive? Is God done with 
his covenant people Israel. It looks like everybody in Israel is going to die. And so this, this text begins to answer the question by saying those who those will stand who stand in grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, unto the glory of God alone. They are the elect of God. Their names have been written down in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Their sin has been atoned for in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's been expiated. It's been removed from them. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's what the scripture says. The wrath of God is clean passed away from those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ was our propitiation. He was that wrath-bearing sacrifice for sin. He was that substitutionary atonement who stood in our place and absorbed the full wrath of God that was bearing down upon his people because of their sin. He took all of that for us. And so these people, these right here, these specifically who are sealed by God to be preserved as survivors. They're standing bold. They're standing tall. They know as Job that their Redeemer lives. They know that he is for them and that he's providing for them and and protecting them. And in in the final analysis of all things, they are going to stand in their bodies on the earth. They're going to see him with their own eyes, face to face, him whom they're so loved. They're the ones who stand when the wrath of God comes. It's those who are running and hiding in the person and work of Jesus Christ. These are they who stand. And this text just begins to give us that answer. We're going to see a fuller answer to this as we come into this next week. But at least here, we're seeing a remnant of Jews. It seems as if God has cast off his people. Paul argues vehemently against that in Romans. God has not cast off his people. These will stand, and they stand by the grace of God who has sealed them with his own precious name. B. They discover to us that God is a promise-keeping God who has not and will not cast off his people. God is a promise-keeping God who has not and will not cast off his covenant people. Now this point is a very big deal when it comes to the issue of just your own confidence in your salvation. And for this reason, I need everybody to listen here. Let's just suppose some scenarios. If God, as is wrongly asserted by many, has divorced his former spouse, Israel, and has taken this new bride that is the church, then how can the church, and we're, for, this, for the sake of this example, we're separating out two things that I don't believe are separated. But for the sake of argument, how can the church not, not believe that God will one day get tired of her and put her away and take a third bride. If God does divorce Israel and take a new bride, the church, the church can have no confidence in her eternal salvation. Because God might decide you all are idolatrous. You're wicked, just like ancient Israel was. And I divorced her. I'm going to divorce you. Let's, let's do something entirely new, right? We have to, this is, a, this is a very relevant question in light of what's going on. Let's, let's put this another way. What if God, and some will wrongfully assert this, has replaced Israel? Israel is God's choice vine in the Old Testament. And some will say that God 
It's gotten fed up with Israel coming to the new covenant. They've rejected Christ. And so now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. That old tree is cut down. And now God is dealing with a new planting. He's replaced old covenant Israel with this new thing in the New Testament, the new covenant, which is the church. Well, again, if that is what happened, then the new covenant church can have no confidence in our eternal salvation. Because if God's willing to cut down his choice vine and start a new plant, what's to say that he won't cut down this new plant also? You see the importance of this question of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. God is faithful. He doesn't divorce his old covenant bride and replace her with a new covenant bride. He doesn't uproot the old covenant plant and replace it with a new covenant bride. Plant both are wrong ideas of theology. The facts are, and our text today demonstrates it. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people, Israel, Jews, whom he foreknew. God is still being faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham. So that Paul can confidently say in verse 5, same chapter, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Even as John or Paul is writing uh, the book of Romans, even as John sits down shortly after to write the book of the Revelation, there is a remnant preserved by God in grace, and they are faithful to him. God has not rejected his people. When Paul asks that question, he he looks to himself. "Has, Has God cast off his people? No way. I'm a Jew. God is saving us. He's the gospel is for the Jews and for the Gentiles. He's, he's not done with his people. And we ought to praise God for this. Because like I said, if God is unfaithful to Israel, then what is to guarantee his faithfulness to us? But the fact is, he has been faithful to Israel. He preserved a remnant of Israel through that judgment. And it is into that Jewish root, that Christ is the root, it's into that Jewish plant that we as Gentiles have been engrafted. And we get access to all of the promises of God, just like the Jews. We get access to all of the same promises in Him. All of us, Jews and Gentiles, get access to the promise through the root of David that is Christ Jesus. God didn't cut down this plant. He didn't divorce this bride. We became part of it. It got enlarged. So praise, praise God here for His faithfulness. He's a promise-keeping God. He doesn't cast off his people. He only enlarges it, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. See, it's 144,000. They demonstrate to us that Israel is first in the gospel. And maybe you can jot this down beside it. They're not only in the gospel. They're first, but not only. So in the New Testament, we encounter this formula to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And this is important for that same fundamental reason for the, in that last point. God is faithful. He's not going to cast off his covenant people, Israel, whom he foreknew. He's going to be faithful to them. But what this point here does is it complements the last one. So as to emphasize that the gospel goes first to the Jews, but not exclusively to the Jews. Not even exclusively to the Gentiles, right? God fulfills his promises to faithful Abraham. He's going to preserve a spiritual seed and a physical seed unto Israel. But he's also enlarging that by grafting in Gentiles to that Jewish root. He's adding to the the sheer volume and size of the bride. We go back to the Abrahamic promises. It was always promised to be this way. 
I'm going to make you a, a father and a, of a multitude of nations, not just one nation, but all the nations, right? He's going to call people out from all of the nations so that while the gospel is first promised to Abraham there in that Abrahamic covenant, it, that promise even there in the Abrahamic covenant is exceedingly broad. And in the new covenant, we see God adding to this beautiful plant that is the remnant of faithful Israel. He's grafting us into that. And these 144,000 show us just the seed of God's faithfulness that is going to be inclusive of a much larger harvest. Indeed, these 144,000, they disclose to us that God is just. Right? God is just. And this point just flows out from the very first one that we made in which we saw the righteous standing because of the work of Christ for them. Folks, Christ is our righteousness. In him, this is what the gospel tells us. We deserve the wrath of God. We're sinners. We're wretches. There's nothing that makes us better than our, our neighbors out in the world who are still in sin today. It's only Christ that makes the difference. We stand in the righteousness of Christ alone. But that righteousness, we're, we're dressed in it for all of eternity. And God is just. He doesn't do double jeopardy, right? We have laws against, against that in this country. He's not going to punish our sin once in Christ and then against on us later on. There is no more wrath for us. This 144,000, they will go through this time of judgment, but they will be providentially protected from it. They are gods. They are in Christ. They are believers. Their sin has been paid for. There is no more wrath for this remnant of God's people. And they're just a microcosm of, of what this gospel is saying to you and to me. If you are in Christ Jesus... Even as often as we stumble and fall during the week, right? None of us lived a perfect life over the past week. And any of us could die at any moment and enter into eternity. We could stand before God. We're all going to stand before Him and give an account of the things done in the body. But praise God, we will not stand before God in fear of condemnation. Because wrath and condemnation is clean passed away from us because of the gospel work of Jesus Christ for His people. God is just. He will punish every transgression and sin, but praise God, our transgressions and sins, the transgressions and sins of this 144,000 sealed servants of God, it was paid for by Jesus Christ the righteous, who nailed it to his cross. Justice has been done, and God is just. Finally here, they declare to us that God is all-powerful to elect and preserve his people in righteousness. God is all-powerful to protect and to preserve his people in righteousness. There are two aspects to this. The first one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we've said it just about every single week in this Revelation series. God is in sovereign control. And there's nothing that you go through that is outside of the bounds of that control. He is powerful to preserve you through every temptation, trouble, trial that you will ever go through. And even if he should determine that your destiny is martyrdom, he is powerful and all-sufficient to pour out grace for you to face every single trial. Our God is powerful to protect and to preserve his people unto everlasting life and everlasting victory. But beyond that, 
I want you to hear what we're saying here. This, these 144,000, they demonstrate that God is sovereign and mighty to preserve his people in righteousness. Living in righteousness. Doing the right thing. So we didn't spend any time on this really, but look at the 12 tribes as they are listed here in the Revelation. 12 tribes of Israel are listed many, many times throughout the scriptures, right? The lists are typically different for one reason or another. But in any one of the lists, it's only ever 12 names. But there are 14 candidates to write down on any one of the lists, right? There's, there's the 12 original sons of Jacob. And then there's Ephraim and Manasseh who were adopted by Jacob as sons. So typically as we come into, say, the, the land of Canaan, and we're talking about land allotments, you'll get a listing of the, the 12 tribes that excludes Joseph and includes his two sons in their place. That would leave 13 names. And so the text usually leaves out Levi because he doesn't get a specific land allotment. His portion is Yahweh. He is the priesthood for all of the nation. But every one of the lists only includes 12 names. This list here excludes Dan and Ephraim. And the only conclusion that I can come to on that is because Dan and Ephraim are the first in idolatry in Israel. Now that is not to say that there, is, there are no saved Jews from the tribe of Jan, Dan in eternity. And there's no saved Jews from the tribe of Ephraim in eternity. I believe that there are. But that's not the point. Revelation is making an argument here. And one of the central arguments that Revelation makes is the judgment of the harlot Israel over against the purity of the, the, the virgin bride Israel. And so there's this contrast of true worship that happens in the throne room and this idolatrous worship. And since Ephraim and Dan are the first in idolatry in Israel, there's, there's a very specific argument being made here about the purity of these 12 tribes that are named. This is a pure and faithful body unto, unto God. They worship in faithfulness. And that matches the description that we get of them throughout the scriptures. When we look at Revelation 7 specifically, they are the servants of our God. When you go back to Ezekiel chapter 9, they are those who grieve and mourn over all of the abominations that are happening all around them. When you go forward to Revelation chapter 14, these are those who are pure and virgin and they've kept themselves for the Lord and they follow the Lamb wherever they go. So I need you to get this picture of who this 144,000 is. Because I believe they represent an actual historical people who God carried through the coming judgment and they end up being this, this, this seed and root for a much greater harvest later on. But these 144,000, whatever their number was, they are not this huddled mass of weak refugees from a very bloody war who were running and hiding in various places in the world. That is not their method of survival. These 144,000, they are standing. We're answering the question... Who can stand? And these 144,000 are standing boldly, powerfully in the grace of God that is given to them so that they go out into the world living the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon the world around them. This is not some huddled mass of people. These are strong believers who are standing firm in the strength and power that God gives them. And boy, do they teach us how we ought to be living in this world. So often we are treating our, our lives on 
earth as if we are supposed to be running and hiding in corners waiting for this, this rescue of, of Christ of us before all the bad stuff happens. Well, again, that, that theology only works in the West because most of the world is living under oppression today. And I heard a stat in the past couple of weeks from James White. He was just pointing out how the kingdom of God is expanding all over the world. And he said there are more Christians alive in the world today, especially in persecuted countries, than there were people on the planet when John wrote the Revelation. There are more Christians alive and serving and worshiping God in truth. Most of them hiding. They're worshiping, right? They're true Christians. They're not American Christians. Christians in name only. But they're, they're worshiping God. There's more of those today than there were people alive on the planet when John wrote the Revelation. The kingdom of God is expanding all over the world. And we're not called to be the, the kind of people who just huddle into the four walls of our church and just hope for, for Christ to come and save us. He's coming again. He is ruling and reigning now. And we are sent out as ambassadors to go with boldness to the people around us in the world, to proclaim the gospel, to live it out faithfully, to let them know not just what we're against as Christians, but what we're for in Christ Jesus, right? We're supposed to be being a light to the world around us, not concealed. And these 144,000, they show us that. They are bold witnesses for God. We'll get to that later on. But they are standing in the power and the strength that Christ gives them. And they are a testimony to a watching world. And this calls us to live in that pattern. Right? Knowing and believing that our God is sovereign. Knowing and believing that our God is faithful. And going out in the strength and power that he gives to us. That is what this text commends us to. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your electing, saving power. These 144,000, they were sealed and set apart for a specific purpose. But so are we. Each and every one of us was, was called by you, elect by you before you created anything. You saved us in the fullness of time. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You bring us into the church. We sit under the preaching of your word. You give us your word to read on our own. You've given us prayer. And you've set us apart and sent us into the world for a purpose. And we're here to glorify your great name, to live out what you've commanded us in the word, and to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And I pray that we will do that. Don't let us be a people who has simply laid hold of some sort of a fictional fire insurance. All of those whom you touch are transformed by the gospel. Don't let any of us sit here today and believe that we will stand in the judgment when we can't even stand against the tides of cultural sin all around us. So many of us today are infected by idolatry. God, we repent of that. Wash us clean of our idolatry and make us a pure and chaste and holy bride unto Christ. Help us to live loving the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make us into that people, that people who loves you and is faithful to you, is set apart for your purposes. You've called us to that. You've given us that in the gospel. Help us to believe it. Help us to stand on all the promises you've given us. We bless your name for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.